Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, based here in Jerusalem, and it's Thursday, the 28th of April. Today, I'm joined by Natan Sachs, who is the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the prestigious Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. His work focuses on Israeli foreign policy, the Israeli-Arab conflict, and Israel-U.S. relations, all issues that we're looking forward to discussing today. Um, Natan, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So perhaps we can start with, I would say, with kind of what is Israel's long-term um, top uh, foreign policy agenda item, and that's Iran. If we can kind of uh, take your initial assessment of where do you think the talks currently stand in uh, over the Iranian nuclear talks in Vienna? Um, will they be renewed? And kind of what do you see coming coming next? We're in an interesting moment in these talks, I think. In the one sense, both administrations seem to have uh, reached where they need to reach to sign something. Uh, Biden came into office determined to return to the JCPOA or at least a compliance with the JCPOA. And the Iranian regime went back and forth, but they seem to have reached what looks like the contours of a deal, but they haven't signed it, of course. And the time passing makes it more difficult. First, we've seen the conflict in Europe making things more complicated because Russia is there. Um, And secondly, the American political timeline is changing. November approaches that um, means that the whole cycle here with an eye towards the midterm and the potential of Biden losing majority, perhaps in both houses of Congress, almost certainly in the Senate, makes the the whole configuration of this more complicated. So on the one hand, very close, and it could be signed. It is something that Biden certainly intends or wants to do, but I would not be sure it will be done um, because of external constraints on both sides and especially the American political cycle. For sure. Um, tell me something, the, uh, from the Israeli perspective, we know that uh, Israel's national security advisor was in Washington, um, I think this, this week. Um, and as opposed to the last government, kind of this new government has made a point not to clash openly with the US administration, even if they do disagree with it. Um, this government's taken a, a different approach um, without going for any kind of public discord. Do you think this approach is going to uh, pay dividend for Israel? Yes, I know. Again, I think there's certainly a different approach. Uh, on fundamentals, they have not changed their position. The Israeli government, like the previous Israeli government, is opposed to the JSPOA, thinks it was a bad deal, etc. There are probably some differences among several of the people at high levels in Israel about the wisdom of pushing the Trump administration or encouraging the Trump administration to withdraw from the deal. Even if you didn't like it originally, that doesn't necessarily make, mean that it make, made sense to withdraw from the deals with, with no clear plan B, as the Bennett people are, are uh, keen to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are also opposed to return to the JCPOA as it stands currently, with no dramatic changes to it, both in terms of enlarging its scope to non-nuclear issues, and second, simply because a lot of time has passed, even, you know, not only were there problems with the original JSPOA, but a lot of time has passed, and that means that some of the sunset clauses are closer than ever. That said, the big difference that you that you alluded to is the decision to approach the United States very differently. We're in Netanyahu, uh, after being surprised by the Obama administration when it negotiated the JPOA, the, the interim deal, uh, in 2013, mm-hmm. decided, in, in essence, not to cooperate with the Americans on their negotiations for the JCPOA, 
even not allowing military people sometimes to discuss details that might have improved marginally here and there because he did not want Israel to be complicit with the deal writ large. The Bennett administration or the Bennett-Lapid government has taken a very different approach. They have engaged with the Americans routinely and they are intend, intending to continue to do so. It is not gaining huge dividends in the sense that the Biden administration made a decision even before it came into office of wanting to return to this deal. And this is of course not what the Bennett-Lapid government wants, but they, the dividends may be important, first of all, in some details that many of which none, none of us know outside the room. And secondly, in the day after, if the deal is signed and if the deal is not signed in both cases, the continued close cooperation might allow the Israelis to influence how America behaves, especially with issues outside the purview of the JCPOA, outside the nuclear issue. How does America respond to Israeli operations with regard to uh, conventional uh, attempts by the Iranians and its, its general regional uh, approach using proxies towards Israel, but also towards other regional partners? Interesting. You mentioned the kind of the idea of the, the, um, the framing of, of the Biden administration when they came in. One of the things that Secretary of State uh, Blinken was talking about aspirationally, I suppose, was about a, a longer and stronger deal. Is that completely off the table now? Do you think that was ever realistic? I think it's off the table, and I frankly don't think it was ever very, very realistic. Uh, <laughs> longer and stronger was something the Americans wanted to say. It was an aspiration. It was something they hoped for. It was something that also spoke to America's partners in the region. But there was never much logic in, in achieving it. The Iranians, for longer and stronger, would have demanded more, more than they got in the JSPOA. And add to that the fact that any reasonable partner of the United States will look and say, well, America signed a deal in 2015, a major international deal, not a treaty, but nonetheless a major international deal. And uh, within three years, America left that deal. Uh, now we're signing something again. Who says that in three years, another president, maybe Trump himself, maybe someone <laughs> else, won't withdraw from the deal. And therefore, they would demand even more. Um, unfortunately, there is some rationale to that. American foreign policy has now become partisan. That has weakened the American hand dramatically in any direction you want to take it. Anyone can sort mm. of approach America by weeding it out. Um, that made a longer and stronger possibility even less uh, likely. Right now, they are certainly not talking about that. They're talking about less, less for less. And, um, and then in theory, perhaps they would talk about something longer. I, I don't see the motivations for the Iranians to do it. I don't see the political likelihood in the United States of that uh, moving forward. So in short, no, I don't. Fair enough. Um, just take you back to kind of this new um, the approach of the, of the, of the Bennett government um, in their relations to the US and uh, not causing any public uh, feuds. Do you, think, um, do you think Israel, if a deal was to sign, they can expect kind of compensation, perhaps more advanced uh, military hardware? Is that on the agenda? I think it's certainly more likely because of the Bennett-Lapid approach. Because of them dealing with the Americans more constructively, there is a chance of that. And especially because in Congress, there is there already there was reluctance to the JSPOA even when it was signed. It was not a simple task for the Obama administration to pass that in Congress, especially in the Senate. Uh, and that is still true today. It would be even more so if the Republicans took control of one or, or two houses of uh, chambers of, of Congress. Um, and so I think there certainly is a possibility. A lot there, of course, depends on Congress, but not only on Congress. It also depends on the administration itself. And I think there would be a possibility. The, there's, the, the devil's in the details here, right? Which hardware exactly? And the question is not only 
would America give Israel more? That often can be the case, especially when Israel want, when the United States wants to compensate Israel, so to speak. But is it the kind of qualitative change that would make an Israeli unilateral strike more likely? So there have been some talk, for example, of Israel asking for the capability to strike some things in Iran without the United States. Bunker busters and, of course, the aircraft to carry those bunker busters. These kinds of things that, that would be a big change. It would require the Air Force to, the Israeli Air Force, to um, prepare to receive them and to train for them. It's, it's not a simple thing. And, of course, to, to have the mechanics that can service them over years, it's a very expensive operation. Um, that, you know, is, is not clearly in the cards at all. It's not clear to me that the United States would agree to do that. In particular, because just like with the United States, where everyone says, okay, well, in two, three years, there could be a very different president. The American administration also looks at Israel and says, well, there could be a different Israeli government. There could be a different American president. Are we setting the stage for a unilateral Israeli strike that would complicate the United States in ways that we, the Biden administration, would not want? So in short, I don't have any clear news, of course, on it. We'll have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. uh, but what details of this kind of compensation what, what are the details would be extremely important. Is it the kind of thing that changes Israel's position in terms of its unilateral capabilities, or is it simply strengthening existing capabilities, which in itself is also very important? Um, just relating to kind of to, to the debate in Congress, I wonder if your, your viewpoint in, uh, in, uh, in Washington, just how is the debate playing out uh, within Congress? And I suppose, um, particularly amongst the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is the right terminology, but kind of the hawkish wing of the Democratic Party, where Biden kind of traditionally came from. What are his old allies saying to him? And can you give us a, a flavor of the debate around on Capitol Hill? Well, there's two sides to this again. On the one hand, uh, the first thing I'd say is that there's much less debate than there used to be. The Middle East writ large, and including even this issue, is not remotely as salient and as important to the Washington debate as it was in the past for several different reasons. Right now, of course, because there's bigger news. There is the, the war in Europe and, and in the context, in the broader context of great power competition, first with China, but now especially with Russia. These are the things that are dominating the American conversation and the foreign policy conversation, let alone the fact that even foreign policy is not the top of the agenda in, in the United States. And so even when you talk about the Middle East, you do get to Iran, but I, I wanna emphasize it's very different than it was when the JCPOA was being signed and then passed. Um, and when Netanyahu came to give his speech in Congress, this was the top news. That's not the case today. And it's not simply because Bennett is not giving a speech. It's because America is focused elsewhere and it's focused elsewhere in a pretty fundamental way. So the short answer about how, where is the debate? It's, it's not remotely where it used to be in any respect. There's just less of it. When there is discussion, I would say there's a lot of skepticism about the JSPOA. There is much less support than you might think. Uh, Democrats uh, have 50 uh, seats in the Senate and then the vice president who can break the tie. But I certainly would not assume that there's 50 in favor of anything in one way or another. Of course, this is not a treaty. It was not in 2015 either. And so Biden does not have to pass it as such. And that is very important. Um, but what Biden hears from Congress to the degree that he's discussing this with Congress is not words of encouragement to jump back into the JSPOA. There are many who support that, mostly because they want to see calm in that region. They want to move on, or calm, I should say, in the American portfolio, at least, in America dealing with this region so that hmm. they can move on to other things. Yeah, important but, distinction. A more important <laughs> distinction, yes. But in terms of the actual details and support for the JSPOA, it's not there. And 
with the, um, well, I should say it is there among many, but it is not an overwhelming support that would make it politically easy, especially with the midterms coming up. I wanna make something clear though. It's not that there's a clear alternative that is more popular. There are many in America who do support the JSPOA for lack of an alternative, for a sense that there, there's nothing on the table and there never was from Israel either that seemed to most Americans to be a credible alternative. Uh, the Republicans are gonna be completely against this, of course, like most things that Biden will propose, but especially this that is trying to reverse a Trump policy. Uh, and there are quite a few, as you, as you well put them, hawkish Democrats who are skeptical at least, but they remain, as in the past, skeptical without a clearly articulated viable alternative. And that is what makes it still quite possible that the, that the Biden administration will go for it. Very interesting. Um, last month, it seems a long time ago already, but last month, um, Secretary Blinken uh, visited, uh, visited the region and he took part in the, the Negev summit, um, which kind of this, uh, this quite uh, unprecedented coming together, Israel hosting not only their old traditional uh, Arab allies, uh, Egypt and Jordan, but their new partners, Morocco, uh, the Emirates and, uh, and, and Bahrain as well. Um, I mean, this, it was slightly overshadowed at the time because of the, one of the uh, terror attacks that occurred at the, at the same time. But overall, it was the, the sense here of those following it was that uh, the, 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 the main topic there was probably united front against Iran and giving that message to, uh, to Secretary Blinken. Um, do you think that's accurate? And how was that um, summit perceived in Washington? Well, whether it's accurate or not, I don't know. I would take with something of a grain of salt. There, there is, I think, a perception in Washington that uh, the, these various regional partners, uh, while publicly opposed mostly to the nuclear deal with Iran, are not actually speaking with one voice behind closed doors. It's not that there is any affinity towards Iran among any of them, obviously, and there's a great deal of fear, but the fear is of different things, where Israel is extremely concerned about the nuclear issue and always has been. For many of these regional partners, there is that concern, but there's even more of a concern about some of the regional activity. If Israel is concerned about Hezbollah, many, of course, the Saudis were not there, but uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis are concerned more about the Houthis in, in Yemen um, and about the possibility of, of strikes on their territory, which we have seen. We have seen strikes in Saudi Arabia and in the Emirates uh, just in recent years. And these are different concerns, and they reflect differently on the possibility of a return to the JSPOA, depending on how the United States approaches the non-nuclear issues. So in short, uh, the top line, yes, a more or less unified stance against this kind of return. And there are obviously very strained relations at the moment between the United States and especially the Saudis, who again, were not in the Negev summit, but uh, who are sort of in the in the sidelines, they, so were, they were there in spirit. In spirit, and <laughs> and and their close friends in Bahrain were there, um, and uh, so obviously there's very strained relations, and they're coming to the fore also in the context of of the energy crisis that we're seeing on the sidelines of the crisis in, in Europe. Um, so yes, unified, but not as unified as I think it seems, and and not for the same motivations, which is quite important. You ask how it's covered in the United States. Well, I would say on the one hand, uh, the image was striking. Uh, there's, you know, the idea that Israel is hosting uh, as not a matter of, of course, not a regular course, but still not a huge, huge precedent in the fact that they were able to bring 
these uh, foreign ministers to Israel. It is a precedent, but uh, given the Abraham Accords, it did not seem like such a momentous event. That in itself is uh, striking. The fact that Israel can do this, that the Secretary of State can go there, uh, it was obviously a big success for the Israeli foreign ministry and the Israeli government, um, but it also reflects, of course, the success of the previous government in Israel and the Abraham Accords. So the, the coverage was, in, in that respect, very positive. It was muted. There's a lot else going on in the world, and of course, especially these days. And as I said before, the Middle East gets less attention. I think this can be mm. sometimes overlooked uh, in the region because wherever you are always seems like the center of the world, and it is in one respect. But for the United States, the Middle East really is not the center of the world right now, and it, it is not in a fundamental way. It could become again if there's a new crisis or something else happens. Of course, that could change. But at the moment, it's not. So even something like the negative summit received less attention than you might think. And finally, I'd add there's one more element, an unfortunate one, I think, which is that the negative summit, although different from the Abraham Accords, is in many respects an outcrop of it, I think a good outcrop. And in the United States, there is uh, the difficulty of partisanship again. Uh, this, this administration is very much in favor of normalization in the Middle East, it's in favor of even the Abraham Accords themselves. But it, of course, is something that was talked up to the previous administration. It's not something that this administration owns, and therefore you see perhaps less energy than you might otherwise uh, if this was a, a Biden success or a Blinken success and they could celebrate it ad nauseum. Here instead, they are happy to participate, uh, happy to promote it, but it's not quite theirs. Fair enough. Um, just one last question on, uh, on the Iranian issue. Um, how, can, how do you see, and this is more so focused, I suppose, around U.S. policy, how in the context of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, how can the U.S. continue to rely on Russian mediation? Of course, the Americans aren't even in the room with the Iranians in Vienna, and we're relying on the Russians as, a, as, a, as mediation. How can the P5 plus one kind of ever form and, and, and meet again um, after, after Russia's invasion? It's an excellent question, and the short answer is I don't know. Uh, the, the specific mechanics in Vienna uh, will be difficult. Russia is a key player there. There are others who can play this role, especially the E3, uh, who can mm -hmm. do a lot of this, and, and we're the key interlocutors anyway, since they are much closer to the United States. Um, but on a more fundamental level, there's a real problem here, and it's Russia, but also China. Uh, their stance has changed in recent years. It is not the unified stance that we saw in 2015. And you'll remember this was one of the rationales for the Obama administration to try to strike a deal um, where the Israelis were arguing that Obama's playing his hand too weak, that, that he has a stronger hand vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians. The Obama administration were always saying that it is not as simple as that. It's not the United States versus Iran. The United States has to keep the P5 together. And... Um, or the P5 plus one together. And that that was a difficult proposition to do. It's become more difficult. Uh, China in particular now basically helps Iran circumvent uh, the oil embargo in, in a significant way, in a way that actually right. matters for Iran. And now we see, of course, Russia in a very different position. Uh, we saw early Russia putting procedural or, or substantive actually hurdles uh, in front of return to the JSPOA. They've since withdrawn that. Uh, but their desire to cooperate may be much more limited. Their desire to return to the JSPA may be much more limited. And this could complicate a return. Uh, China and Russia are very different, of course. China is an enormous importer of energy. Russia is an enormous exporter of energy. And that is two very different things vis-a-vis -vis Iran. 
Um, and the United States uh, has its own position, of course, and a political sensitivity to the price of oil. That can go in both ways. If Iran, if a deal is struck and Iranian oil returns to the market, that could lower the prices somewhat. And that is usually politically good for a sitting president in the United States. But of course, returning to the deal uh, could be bad. So in short, uh, it complicates things dramatically, potentially very much so. It's not that the United States doesn't have other interlocutors, especially the European, the Western European countries, uh, but the P5 plus one as a proposition vis-a-vis Iran is much weaker than it was in 2015. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for that. Um, let's just turn our attention uh, for a few minutes onto kind of Israel's uh, internal um, um, or, or, or local um, security predicaments at the moment. Um, high tension after recent terror attacks, um, some s- small amount of rocket fire, both from Gaza and from, uh, and from Lebanon, um, and uh, tension on the Temple Mount. Um, how, would you just, how much is this kind of occupying the attention um, of the, uh, the, the chattering classes, the, polit- the political echelon in DC? Um, and how would you compare it kind of over time for how supportive they are of Israel's predicament? Um, already a theme in our conversation, less attention than you might think. It's not, it's not <laughs> occupying most of the time uh, for the obvious reasons. I mean, of course, Russia and Ukraine uh, atop the news, and then you have much else going on in the world. And, um, and of course, this is far away. And uh, until it becomes a major configuration like we saw a year ago in May, uh, it's not going to occupy the top headlines in the United States. Um, how, how sympathetic are Americans in general or Washington uh, chattering classes to the Israeli position? It's complicated. In general, in conflicts with Gaza, and this was true a year ago, there's quite a bit of support for Israel, obviously. The basic American position is very pro-Israel. And we saw the Biden administration take a very pro-Israel stance, um, despite some domestic criticism for that, even from from some traditional Democrats in Congress. The Biden administration was taking a very much a stance of we will uh, hug Israel towards uh, ceasefire rather than criticize Israel. And, Mm. And that is quite quite notable. This is a difference between the the Biden-Harris administration, perhaps, and others in the Democratic Party that are shifting. But nonetheless, the conflict is not just between Israel and Gaza. And around that, there's a lot more criticism towards Israel than there used to be in the past, in particular around Sheikh Jarrah, which is less of an issue right now, but around um, the police incursion into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which, of course, has a complex context. But nonetheless, uh, around the world, in the Muslim world, is an extremely visible, salient image um, and one that really reverberates, and one for which you see in the region, but you see also in the United States, an uneasiness and a desire uh, for calm and for cooler heads. The, the Temple Mount issue is, of course, extremely complex and very hard for most people who are not focused on this issue to follow exactly you know, how many Jews are going up to Temple Mount and what exactly are they allowed to say or not allowed to say there, and why there are so many more of them today than there were 10 or 20 years ago. Um, but the general sense that the tensions in Jerusalem in particular uh, are complex and ones in which Israel has not uh, always shown restraint, and in particular some members of the Israeli Knesset have actively tried to inflame things, um, that, that caused a lot of criticism. Uh, the, the Gaza conflict, once Gaza entered the scene last May, uh, things shifted to a certain degree. There's always, of course, a lot of sympathy for the the population in Gaza and much more visibility towards the civilian casualties in Gaza than is seen even in the Israeli news, much more so. But overall, the American official position remained very pro-Israel. 
I'd say right now, it's a bit of an echo of that to the degree that it's a, it's a major issue at all, which is limited. It is an echo of that and mostly a hope against hope that it does not inf get inflamed again as it did just a year ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we saw um, the US contributing, uh, I mean, I would say kind of low, low scale um, shuttle diplomacy um, this week with the acting assistant secretary of state for Northeast Affairs, yeah, Lempert and her colleague, um, the, uh, the secretary, uh, Hadi Amar, also visiting. Um, a couple of points on that. First, I mean, how would you assess the current uh, state of play with US-Palestinian relations? That's a good question. I think the US-Palestinian relations, you know, the, if you go back to the beginning of the Obama, of, excuse me, the Biden administration, um, their instinct, as is the instinct for many American administrations, was to do exactly the opposite of their predecessors. So on anything <laughs> that, that Trump touched, in particular with regard to the peace process, there was a natural, perhaps, uh, instinct to do the opposite. But on most things that that Trump did vis-a-vis -vis Israel, even on the Israeli-Palestinian front, there wasn't a desire to, there wasn't actually the political will to change it. And that's particularly true about recognition of Jerusalem uh, as, as Israel's capital or the movement of the embassy. And also on the wider spectrum and recognition of the Golan and certainly not the Abraham Accords, which the uh, Biden administration supports actively. And so the one area where there was a true desire and an explicit political will to change things was in the dramatic break between the Trump administration and the Palestinian leadership, which at times seemed like punitive uh, attempts by the Trump administration to humiliate and sideline the Palestinians as such, cutting off all aid even to hospitals in East Jerusalem, cutting all aid to UNRWA, even including schools in Gaza, which of course would, would send kids to Hamas schools or the, or the street, um, even though there is a larger context there, of course. Um, and on this, that's where the Obama, the, excuse me, the Biden administration wanted to change things. Um, it's limited. They did not, for example, reopen the consulate in Jerusalem as a consulate, the consulate general in Jerusalem, which used to be the mission in a sense to the Palestinians. And they had intended to reopen it as a separate entity from the embassy to make it again, in essence, a de facto embassy to the Palestinians. They did not do that in the end, mostly because of Israeli objections. Uh, and so on the symbolic level, I would say the relations are certainly better than they were with the Trump administration after the Jerusalem declaration, but not remotely where the Palestinians wanted them. There is no envoy for the Middle East peace. Uh, Hadi Amr, who is the deputy, uh, secretary, deputy assistant secretary of state, is the, the point person in the State Department uh, for these issues. So there's not a special envoy and there's not uh, a presidential attempt to resume the peace process or anything like that. It was not the opening of the Consul General, as I said. But on the ground, there are a lot of things that are very different. Um, the officials you mentioned and others have been very active with the Israeli government, especially the Ministry of Defense, uh, and with the Palestinian Authority, and with others in the region, to try to make sure that actual life in Gaza and in the West Bank gets better, and that the cooperation, the coordination between the Israelis and the Palestinians improves. And we have seen some some, I wouldn't say dramatic changes, but some very real changes, some of them significant. In particular, we've seen um, several fold increase in the permits for workers out of Gaza into Israel, something that the Israeli Ministry of Defense controls, and of course, the Americans and others are involved. We've seen a new procedure for the transfer of funds uh, from the Qataris uh, into the Gaza Strip, no longer in 
suitcases full of suitcases, cash. Yeah. yeah, no longer the protection money coming in like the mob. Instead, something that's much more formalized and and perhaps slightly less of it getting to Hamas, although I don't think anyone has any illusions that some of it does. Um, in this regard, we've seen a lot of activity and we've seen quite a few successes, but I'll just caveat this. These are successes in the small sense, the sense of trying to improve things on the ground and trying to mediate. Right now, when we've touched on the most symbolic and often irrational issues like Temple Mount and Jerusalem writ large, their mediation is key and is very difficult. Um, and one mistake there, or not mistake, but a conflagration around that, of course, can sometimes wash out uh, all the little successes with one more round of violence or two in Israel and Hamas. You could see all that going down the drain. Um, if I can just finish with a couple of kind of um, big picture questions, you've mentioned a couple of times kind of the, the perception, at least, uh, of, the, of the withdrawal of, of focus and the prioritizing of the Middle East. Um, I wonder if you could just characterize that and kind of uh, ex explain kind of where that uh, where that pivot is going on U.S. policy. And uh, and secondly, kind of what the U.S. government can do to reassure their traditional regional allies. Yeah, I think the United States, you know, for quite a while, since the beginning of the Obama administration, at least, has had an intent to rebalance away from the Middle East, as they referred to it then. They used sort of the metaphor of an investment portfolio where it was overinvested in the Middle East and they needed to rebalance their investments mostly towards Asia. Uh, and there was a logic to it. It became known as the pivot. That was a phrase they used by mistake, but it, was a, it became known as the pivot uh, to Asia for, and of course from the Middle East. But the Obama administration to a large degree failed to pivot. Uh, Obama became, Obama and his principles became very invested, certainly in their time, in the crisis in Syria with all the question of the red lines, in the crisis in Libya, where the United States was involved together with European allies, uh, and of course, in efforts twice at least to mediate between Israelis and Palestinians, and many other issues. The war in Yemen began then, um, and of course, the Iranian nuclear deal. So a very heavy portfolio on the Middle East. Then came Trump, who didn't exactly speak in terms of pivoting or rebalancing, but certainly was not eager to go back to Bush days. He was uh, vociferously opposed to any idea of U.S. commitment of uh, funds or its own military and defense of, of allies in the region. Uh, under his term, you saw an attack uh, in Saudi Arabia against oil facilities, a major attack, and no overt, um, at least public, response from the United States uh, at that time, something that was, was very much taken to heart in Arab capitals and really uh, showed a very new era um, or a solidification, really, of this era of America, America looking elsewhere and thinking of the Middle East as an area that needs to partly fend for itself. There was a big difference, of course, mm. many big differences between Trump and, and Obama. Trump was very clearly partisan in the Middle East conflicts and, and sided very clearly with Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE and against Iran, where Obama was trying to balance a little more. In comes Biden, and Biden, I think, for the first time has actually managed to pivot. This is quite considerable. Um, there was the conflict in Gaza. There's certainly, uh, obviously, Afghanistan, which is on the margins of the Middle East, not really in the Middle East, um, required an enormous amount of effort and, and was not seen as successful. But the, by and large, the Biden administration truly has refocused its efforts towards China and now much more towards Europe and Russia. And in this regard, it really does entail a change of thinking, both in the way the, the Americans relate to the Middle East and the way 
America's traditional partners in the Middle East relate to it. So the Negev summit, I think, was quite symbolic, not just because we see Israeli Arab rapprochement coming to fruition, but also because we see these partners trying to think about their own security architecture in the Middle East with active cooperation between Israelis and Arabs in defense issues, which is really quite remarkable. And, and this, this is a very new reality, a very different one. You asked how the United States could, could reassure its partners. And I think that's a key question. To a certain degree, there are those in Washington who ask the question, why should the United States? Why is it the job of the United States to reassure the partners and not vice versa, for example? Uh, we are talking at the end of the day, mostly about Middle East security. It affects the United States. And as we saw in 9-11, it could affect the United States dramatically. But fundamentally, we're talking about Middle East security. So perhaps the question should be the reverse. What is it that the partners hmm. in the Middle East uh, should say to the United States to tell it to try to convince it to do X, Y, or Z, or to reassure it one way or another? There are many who do not. There are many who still think in, a, in more traditional terms about trying to keep these alliances or quasi-alliances uh, in place. Um, it'd be very difficult with a return to the JSPOA for many of them, including Israel. Uh, that, is a, that is a major issue. And it is also complicated by other issues, in particular with Saudi Arabia. There is a very strong domestic constituency in the United States, on the Democratic side at least, uh, but not only, that is loath to close relations with Sa the Saudis, and is in particular with MBS, um, the Crown Prince. Uh, sure. The Khashoggi issue, of course, is, is prominent, although I would say substantive, substantively much less important than, say, the war in Yemen or the adventures with the Lebanese, former Lebanese prime minister or any number of other issues. Uh, but this is a major issue that, that does have some domestic resonance in the United States. I don't think it's being resolved one way or another. I don't think we should overblow how, sort of overstate how much the United States is withdrawing. It's not withdrawing from the region. It still has an enormous military footprint there and military facilities that could be uh, deployed to. Um, and it's still heavily involved. But nonetheless, it's obviously a different era than it was in previous decades. And, and that kind of question of where does the United States stand and where do its regional allies stand, that question is not going away. I think there's gonna be jockeying and figuring out of what exactly are these relationships about that might continue for several years to come. Well, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. I think there's a lot more we could discuss and we may have to invite you back on to, uh, to follow up some more issues, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.